This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb F., Amy, Joanna, Noah, and Sam VR. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. We'll begin, as always, with a couple of serious questions. We have questions from Caleb F. and Amy in this episode, and both of these questions are about recent sermons at Grace. First, here's Caleb F.'s question. Why does Matthew 4.15 say Galilee of the Gentiles? Isn't Galilee in Israel? Caleb, this phrase, Galilee of the Gentiles, comes from the prophet Isaiah. And in Matthew 4, Matthew is quoting it to show us that Jesus' ministry is a fulfillment of the words of the prophecy. And you raise a really good point. Because geographically, you're absolutely right. Galilee is located in the far north of Israel. So why does the prophet Isaiah refer to it as Galilee of the nations, or as we see in Matthew, Galilee of the Gentiles, instead of calling it, you know, something like Galilee of the Jews? Well, the reason is that the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered in the Old Testament by the Assyrians. And in order to rule the land, the Assyrians took a certain approach. They would deport people who lived in the land, and they would bring in people from other countries and settle them to live there because they thought mixing things up in that way made their new conquest easier for them to rule. So that part of Israel, the northern part, was resettled by foreigners during that period and over the course of hundreds of years, a lot of the people who were located there uh, weren't ethnically Jewish at all. And that created a lot of tension. Uh, this is why, for example, uh, people in Jesus's day didn't like the Samaritans, because Samaria was part of that resettled land. Well, the interesting thing is, when Matthew calls Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, he's not referring to it that way in a negative sense. This is actually good news, because by talking about this place as the beginning point, the epicenter of Jesus's Galilean ministry, he's hinting at the fact that Jesus came to save not only Jewish people, but also Gentile people as well, that he is the hope of the nations, that he is the savior of the world. And now Amy asks, what would we do if the earth did give way? How would we be safe if the earth gave way? Well, this question comes from Dan Reed's recent sermon on Psalm chapter 46, which says that because God is our refuge, we won't fear even if the earth gives way. I think you can understand Amy's curiosity because if the earth really collapsed into the sea and, and gave way, if it disappeared, the ground beneath our feet, 
wouldn't that be a little bit terrifying? We have to remember that Psalm 46 is poetry, and the idea that the psalmist is teaching us is that God is so powerful and he loves us so much that no matter what happens, we don't need to be afraid. So to convey that idea, he comes up with the most terrifying vision that he can think of, something that would definitely make us afraid. And he does this in order to challenge us. He's basically saying, you trust in God, so why would anything, no matter how bad, make you feel afraid? Really, Psalm 46 is telling us to have the same kind of faith that Abraham had. When God told Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, Abraham was willing to go forward in faith in doing that thing, even though it was terrible to contemplate. Remember, God had promised Abraham that his offspring would be named after Isaac, that all of the blessings that were going to come to his people were going to come through Isaac. So you'd think that if he sacrificed Isaac, that meant that none of those promises would ever come true. Even so, Abraham was willing to do this, and the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 11 of Hebrews why. He says that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. In other words, as terrible as losing Isaac would be, Abraham wasn't afraid. He didn't have fear because he trusted God so much that he figured that God would keep his promise no matter what, that, that God was powerful enough to fix anything that went wrong, including death. And we can be confident of the same thing. If God is our refuge, then nothing, no matter how terrifying, how unimaginable it is, is worth fearing. Because God can overcome anything. And now it's time for the big question. In this episode, our big question comes from Joanna. So let's give her a round of applause. This is Joanna's question. She asks, when did you become a Christian? Now, this is a big question to me, and it should be a big question for you as well. Anytime someone asks you about becoming a Christian, you should be eager to answer, because really, it's the biggest question of them all. I love hearing how other people came to faith. I think one of the reasons is that when you hear all the different stories, you see how God works in people's lives and how he works uniquely in people's lives. One person's journey can be very different than someone else's. Some people feel like they've always believed, and some people remember an exact moment when they came to trust in Jesus. For some, it seems like the Spirit works very quickly in their hearts and for others, it seems to take a long, long time. So here's how it happened in my life. When I was eight years old, I started thinking about some things that a Sunday school teacher of mine had told me. I was thinking about the need to repent of my sins and to trust Jesus alone to forgive me. I was contemplating, I was thinking, about, what does that mean? How, how do you do that? I happened to be uh, in bed 
late at night as I was thinking about these things. And, and as I thought about them, I felt this urge to just pray to God, to, to ask him to, to guide and direct me. I confessed that I was a sinner and I asked for God's forgiveness. And I said in my prayer that I wanted the, the help of the Holy Spirit to, to follow Jesus and, and to have faith in him. No, technically, at that time, I was supposed to be asleep. It was well past my bedtime. And instead, I was under the covers with my flashlight on. And, and so I actually did pray to God that he would forgive me for that as well. I was putting my faith in him and asking him to forgive my sins as I was breaking the rules in order to do it. When I told my Sunday school teacher about this, she was very happy, of course, and she brought me to tell the pastor. And then eventually I went in front of the whole church and I made a public profession of faith. Now, some people ask when they hear my story, how could you understand the gospel when you were only eight years old? I always wonder if the people who ask this can remember what it was like when they were eight years old, because there are a lot of things that you can understand at the age of eight. In fact, I think there might be some things that you understand better at the age of eight than you will later on in life. Obviously, of course, I didn't understand everything. There was so much about God, the Bible, Jesus, forgiveness, salvation that, that, that I still had to learn. But salvation is not about understanding everything. It's about God's spirit working in you, God empowering you to turn away from your sin, giving you faith even if you don't know all the right answers and don't fully understand what it is that, that is being kindled inside you. In fact, no matter how old you get, you'll never know all the answers. So I became a Christian when I was eight years old, and this year I turned 51. Over all of those years, God has given me a lot more understanding than I had at first, but even so, uh, the thing that he started in me at the age of eight was real, and he has kept working in me ever since over all those years. So that's how I answer the question. Uh, here's a question for you. How would you answer that question? Because this is a big question that we all need to think about, that we all need an answer to. So if you're listening to this and you haven't already put your faith in Jesus, do it now. This is a good time to pray to God, to repent of your sins, put your faith in Jesus, pray for the strength of the Holy Spirit to help you in following him. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. We have questions this time from Noah and from Sam VR. First, Noah wants to know, what passage of the Bible do you think has had the least sermons preached on it? Noah, I appreciate the way that you phrase the question when you're asking, what do you think the answer is, not what is the answer? Because honestly, I don't really know what passage has been the least preached about but I do have a pretty good idea. I think I can guess 
what book of the Bible has had the fewest sermons preached about it? And I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably the Song of Solomon. Now, there's a reason for this. The Song of Solomon is a love song between a man and a woman, and a lot of the images in this book, in the, the poetry of it, they're pretty intense. Now, supposedly, the rabbis of old wouldn't even let their students read this book of the Bible until they reached a certain age. I don't know whether that's really true or not, but I've heard it so many times from so many pastors that I think it might be. Now, I personally have only ever preached one sermon from that book. It was on an Easter Sunday, no less, and the text, Love is Stronger Than Death. So I have preached on it, and I haven't preached on every single book of the Bible yet. So, so ironically, even though I think this is the least preached, I, I have actually preached it more than, than some books, at least so far. But, but I think you'd probably find that this is a book you're not likely to hear preached very often. And now, finally, Sam VR asks, do you enjoy the big question? Well, Sam and everyone listening, I hope it's obvious to all of you that the answer to this one is absolutely yes. I enjoy the big question. I love doing it, and I hope you enjoy it too. For one thing, I like the challenge of trying to answer your questions as best I can. I know that some of my answers are better than others. Sometimes I answer the question really well, and sometimes you have more questions after you've heard what I have to say. But your questions help keep me on my toes, and I'm always fascinated by what you're wondering about and impressed by how good your questions are, whether they're serious questions, big questions, fun questions, they're always interesting and challenging. Now, here's another thing that I really enjoy. A lot of people get the impression that in church, you're not supposed to ask questions. And honestly, it's not just in church. These days, you'll find in, in school and work, in modern society in general, there's a lot of pressure not to question the beliefs that everyone else takes for granted. Now, the problem is, if you can't ask questions, you can't get answers. Just going along and not rocking the boat doesn't teach you anything. So I think it's really important for our church to be a place where you can ask questions and where we can admit, honestly, that we don't always understand. We don't always have the answer because God doesn't always reveal it to us. I think it helps us grow in understanding when we're able to ask questions and also helps us stay humble when we have to admit when we don't know the answer. When it comes to both of those things, understanding and humility, we need all the help we can get. And that's one of the big reasons I enjoy the big question. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions. <laughs>